again, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Welcome back as we continue in what is now our third season. My name is Jeffrey Kwame. I'm your host and executive director of the Connecticut Certification Board. Our podcast today is made possible through the financial support of Crowell Counseling and Consulting in Westbrook, Connecticut on the Boston Post Road. The practice owner, Joanna Crowell, is a licensed professional counselor and EMDR certified trauma therapist. She is also internationally certified as both an advanced alcohol and drug counselor and clinical supervisor. Joanna is an integrative psychotherapist who incorporates a holistic approach to health, wellness, and recovery. She works with clients and meets them where they're at to support their client-led goals and habit changes that support an ongoing process of transformation. She has been a passionate member of the mental health addiction recovery field for over 10 years, approaching recovery as a lifestyle rather than a short-term solution. For more information, you can go to crowellcounseling.org or you can reach the practice at 860-567-2252. On behalf of the board of directors and the staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to the special episode of Scope of Practice as we begin National Problem Gambling Month. During this past year's football season, you couldn't put on a television or radio without hearing an advertisement or seeing an ad for one of the many online gambling companies, or even drive down the street without seeing a billboard advertising the same. As the playoffs began, in-game commercials advertised prop bets that could be made immediately. It was unprecedented in our history. Did advertising work? Although final numbers won't be available until April, this year's this year Super Bowl saw about 31 million people wager about $7.6 billion. That's billion with a B, more than the total budget of four states, Delaware, Montana, New Hampshire, and Vermont. And the total number of gamblers is slightly more than the population of Texas. Keep in mind that those numbers for legal gambling, a 35% increase from the previous year. The overwhelming majority of those 31 million are responsible gamblers who wage for fun and entertainment, probably similar in fashion to those who wager on events like the Kentucky Derby. However, we cannot ignore the effective advertising on those with gambling disorder. The sports world is finally taking notice, as evidenced by the article Ryan Hockesmith on ESPN.com entitled Inside the Life of a Gambling Helpline Worker, which gave us insight into the work of our longtime friend, Caitlin Brown. Caitlin Brown is a licensed professional counselor, licensed drug and alcohol counselor, internationally certified gambling counselor, and board-certified clinical consultant for the National Council on Problem Gambling. She graduated with her undergraduate degree in psychology and sociology and received her master's in clinical mental health counseling. In her role with the council, she has facilitated workshops both regionally and nationally for students, providers, seniors, and recovery communities. Caitlin currently serves on the Connecticut Suicide Advisory Board, Women's Services Practice Improvement Collaborative, as well as the National Council on Problem Gambling's Helpline, Treatment, and Prevention Committees. Caitlin previously worked as a therapist for Connecticut Better Choice gambling-specific treatment programs at the Connection Incorporated at MCCA. She has experience with inpatient detoxification and intensive outpatient treatment settings with a specialization in the field of co-occurring disorders for over 10 years. Welcome to the show, Caitlin. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me today. You're welcome. Uh, You and I spoke about a week ago about the article, and you talked about the need to be really careful when you talk to the press at any time. Um, I don't discount the importance of your experience there. And I think that would be something that's interesting to our listeners. Can you talk about those risks of talking to the press and why were you willing to talk to ESPN? Sure. So I think just having my background be a therapist, 
Um, I'm not usually in, in the field with the, with the press and the reporters. Um, and so that's really an area that I am now getting used to. So my experience with ESPN was really one of the first opportunities that I had to talk to a reporter. Um, and Ryan was amazing. So he is a great journalist. He was able to really focus on the work that I do and not so much on the numbers. Um, so I know that everyone's focused on data and the numbers, which can be important even more so now, especially when numbers are attached to funding. Um, but I'm really more focused on the stories and the people who are de- directly impacted by the harms associated with gambling. Um, and I had a mentor one time tell me, no data without a story and no story without a data. Um, so I think that sometimes when reporters are doing their articles, they're really hyper-focused on the data, but it doesn't paint a full picture of what's really going on um, in our community in Connecticut with people that are diagnosed with gambling disorder, as well as people that are just now starting to see some of the risks associated um, negatively on their life with sports and online being legalized. I thought the article did a really good job of kind of, uh, you know, exploring what the, what the struggles are for people who aren't really sure they're, they've got, you know, one foot in and one foot out. Do I have a problem? What's going on here? Uh, and I think that there's a lot of that in the community. You know, we tend to go black or white, right? Somebody, the, the, the overwhelming majority of folks who, who don't have problem gambling disorder, and then we go right to those those who struggle with it. And I think that the picture of somebody kind of in the middle uh, is very realistic and, and really hits home. So I thought that was a nice uh, a nice aspect to touch on. Yeah, and I appreciated that he was able to to really tell that story. Um, Right now, what we're seeing on our helpline is traditionally we've had people that are calling in crisis, right? So they've lost everything. Um, Their spouses might be on the verge of leaving them. Um, There might be in their, you know, 50s or 60s reaching out for help for the first time. Um, And those are the callers that we're very used to. And, And when I worked in treatment in the Better Choice Provider, you know, as a Better Choice Provider, it was the same thing. Our clientele were, you know, of that age. Um, Now what we're seeing on our helpline is the demographics are significantly shifting to a much younger age group. Um, So actually the highest risk of developing a gambling problem is between the age of 18 and 25, which we know is uh, risky for um, other behaviors as well, including substance use. Um, So what we want to focus on is addressing those needs Um, talking about issues with the online apps and sports betting, and then having their parents call us um, and being very, very concerned about what's going on with their children, Um, particularly college age around Christmas time. We've had a lot of parents reach out to us saying, how can I get my son or daughter into treatment um, as soon as possible when they're home for winter break? It's a complete change of, of what the field is used to. So the field has kind of had to, you know, and you and your colleagues have to adjust on the fly to be able to meet the needs of the of the uh, the people that are in front of you. Which for our field overall, the, the substance use disorder and, and addictions field, we haven't been especially good at that. We've have a history of trying to fit people into boxes instead of us changing to be where the folks that we're seeing at. So, I mean, that's that's to me great news that that. That you're able to do that. Um, can you talk about when we talk about some of these young folks? Can you talk about the effect of legalized sports betting? I think it's 31 states now that have legalized sports betting on the number of ind- individuals that are concerned or or may possibly have a gambling disorder. 
Sure. When we talk about statistics around gambling disorder, so it's about one to 2% of the general population meet the diagnostic criteria from the DSM-5 to meet the criteria for a gambling disorder. Um, so in Connecticut, that's actually around 54,000 people. Um, so we try to say, okay, one to 2% doesn't seem like that many people, but in Connecticut, that's a, that's a good amount. And then for people that are at risk is an additional 8%, which is around 287,000 people that are experiencing risks around gambling. So now that data was a couple of years ago, and that was previous to the legalization of online and sports betting. Um, so we're really pushing the state to do um, a gambling pre prevalence study so that we can kind of reassess that data, because um, my guess would be that those numbers have significantly risen uh, since the legalization. Um, and also it just increases access to constant action. So we know that a risk factor for substance use for um, gambling as well is accessibility. And so we know that from the research that if you are living within 50 miles of a casino, your rates of developing a gambling problem double. So now everybody has a casino essentially in the palm of their hand with their cell phone, their computer, their tablet. And so that's a, a huge risk factor in itself, not only to young people, but everyone across the lifespan. And I'm sure that, that online gambling had a significant increase, an explosion, so to speak, um, during pandemic times when, when people were kind of uh, shut in, weren't able to go to casinos or, or just lonely, depressed and all the things that go with that isolation. Yeah, we definitely heard that from the treatment side. Um, so I don't do treatment anymore, but... Um, we heard that from some of our treatment providers that even though it wasn't legalized in Connecticut yet during pre-COVID or right when COVID hit, um, there was a spike in internet gambling. As I mentioned in the intro, just the sheer amount of advertising related to online gambling industry is, is stunning. I mean, there were websites to talk about. It. There were all kinds of things. One thing I noticed uh, as we moved on in the year is that they weren't limited to breaks and sports programming, but they were on all different networks and channels. Um, do you see this as an obvious attempt to lure in those who would not normally get involved in, in gambling? Uh, yes, I think that they are in the business of making money, right? So just like the casinos traditionally, you know, send out promos and um, have commercials normalizing and glamorizing gambling as a form of entertainment. Um, I think the online companies are doing the same. Um, I think one thing is that they have um, one thing that we're specifically worried about is the idea of these risk free bets. So I'm sure you've seen those ads, oh, yeah. Jeff, right? Um, so, you know, you bet with your own money. If you lose, uh, the sports book will refund your stake in a form of a new bet. So, um, you know, that essentially the definition of gambling involves some element of risk on something that has an uncertain outcome. So when you're talking about gambling, whether it be online sports, lottery, whatever, um, you are risking something. So no, there's no such thing as a risk-free bet. And I think helping people to understand the odds, helping them to understand what that really means when a company is saying a risk-free bet, that they're giving money to you in your account for you to continue to play. Um, so it's a way for them to get people to bet more money, um, make people kind of think that they have control and nothing to lose, um, which encourages more player behavior to continue to gamble um, and also normalizes it. So I think the increased ads also show people that this is something that everybody participates in. And we know specifically with young people, they have FOMO, right? The fear of missing out. Yeah. So if they're not doing it, but all their friends are doing that, um, you know, what impact does that have on their socialization and their form of entertainment? 
Yeah, it, it's uh, the commercials are really misleading when it says bet five, win two fifty. You're not getting two hundred fifty dollars. Um, you're just getting a chance to dig yourself into more of a hole. Yeah, and I think that something we need to work on is, you know, as far as our organization, we also are focusing on responsible gambling. And part of this element of responsible gambling is just that education piece to let people know what that really means um, when a company says that and what that means for your bank account. From what you're hearing from the people that you're working with and what you're seeing, are there more subtle ways that the industry is trying to lure in new customers, so to speak? Um, so I also think like one focus that I saw was an LSU example. I don't know if you've seen that mm -hmm. floating around. Um, they actually sent out an email to all students of LSU with a promo code um, for them to be able to gamble. I don't remember exactly what it was. It was like, if you use the promo code, you could get $200 or whatever it may be. But this went out to all of the students. And so we don't know if all of those students are of age. In Connecticut, you have to be 21 to bet on sports. Um, so I think that's one way that they target younger people because younger people in themselves, like I said, are more risk takers, they're more vulnerable, and they're more likely to spend their money on gambling. You know, I remember many years ago that... Um professional sports leagues were loath to put a team in Las Vegas. Now we have a couple of teams in Las Vegas, so they were concerned about the, the association with the gambling industry. Um, it doesn't seem that those teams are, are having that problem, but when you have colleges supporting, uh, especially state universities, uh, supporting that like LSU, it creates a potential problem for a lot of people um, and pressure. Uh, um, the students to to get involved. Hey, are you doing this in a top of conversation? That's pretty frightening. And I think one thing also that we, we try to focus on with um, college students because they are at risk of developing a problem more than adults um, is having people look at their gambling policies. So we know that a lot of colleges and universities have drug and alcohol policies. So if you're caught with alcohol in your dorm, you have to go to an AA meeting or there might be other things. You have to go see a counselor, something like that. But the majority of college universities that I speak with um, either don't know if they have a policy um, or if they do have a policy, it's something that says you can't gamble on the campus. But really, what does that mean? There's more education to be done to let people know what counts as gambling um, and then what happens if somebody is gambling or what if they are gambling underage. So just something to keep in mind for people to dig a little deeper on what's going on on college campuses. Uh, identified in the article. Um, on ESPN.com is that some of the larger online com uh, companies employ individuals to focus on responsible gambling. Uh, they actually hire individuals to work that. Um, I'm incredibly skeptical. So <laughs> do you feel that there's a commitment from these companies to identify and reduce problem gambling? So I do. I do feel like there is a level of commitment from the industry um, to try to reduce the harms that are associated. I think some companies do a better job than others, if we're being honest. Um, we do work really closely with our tribal casinos. They have responsible gambling committees. So um, people from our organization, including myself, sit on those committees. Um, they have retail trainings, employee trainings, especially during the time of Problem Gambling Awareness Month or Responsible Gaming Education Week. Um, we've been able to go to the casinos and do um, educational tables either behind the house with employees or also on right outside of the gaming floor with patrons, just handing out resources to let people know things are available for help. 
Um, I, we also have the Connecticut partnership with the Connecticut Lottery, as well as the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services Problem Gambling Services. Um, and I think that the online for- platforms actually have more options for responsible play. And I don't know if you've explored any of that, but um, we've had a couple examples with um, one company in particular, and they've really been able to show us how the apps work. So there's options for limit setting, which would be deposit limits, time limits, money limits, um, self-suspension, which is essentially taking a timeout or break period. And then they also have the option for voluntary self-exclusion where you can actually pick a term of like one year or five years um, where you aren't able to gamble online. And that also exists um, in brick and mortar, the casinos as well. So I think they do a decent job, um, but there's always room for improvement. When we look at problem gambling in the United, uh, United States, you talked about the the one to 2% um, of the general population. Are there specific demographic groups that have higher risks? Yes. So one that I'm super passionate about working with, which you can probably imagine already, is the 18 to 25 age group, you know, the college age students. So they are at a significant um, risk of developing problems. Um, when I talk about that one to 2% um, meeting the, the criteria for gambling disorder, there's an additional three to 4% that are already showing problems. So not necessarily meeting the diagnostic criteria, but maybe they meet one or two of the criteria. Um, And when we're looking at those statistics, the rates for youth actually are times two. Um, People that are already diagnosed with a substance use disorder or a mental health issue, um, the rates are times 10. And those that are in the Department of Corrections or the criminal justice system, the rates are actually multiplied by 20. Um, So I know that many of your listeners are probably providers that either work with youth, people in recovery, people that have mental health concerns, or even in the criminal justice system. So that's just something to keep in mind. Um, our organization also focused that focuses on other at-risk populations. Um, we try to do some work in middle schools and high schools, and there's some great projects that we're collaborating on right now um, with doing youth PSAs, and we also work with Fox 61 Student News. So that's a, an exciting opportunity just to increase the awareness with those groups. Um, also, employees of the casinos or casino or industry employees are at a higher risk veterans, seniors. Um, so there's a lot of different groups that are at risk for different reasons. You had mentioned uh, the exponentially greater risk that people uh, 18 to 25 or under and, and those with co-occurring uh, substance use or mental health disorders. And I saw a, a statistic that is really interesting that from the National Center for Responsible Gaming, over 96% of individuals with a lifetime uh, problem gambling disorder also met criteria for other lifetime mental health disorders. How does this impact the treatment? Are we able to look at things um, holistically in a co-occurring rather than just simply being siloed, which our field is very used to those silos? Yes. And so in Connecticut, we actually have what's called better choice treatment programs. And in my bio, you read that I used to work for two of them. Um, It's amazing treatment. All the providers are internationally certified gambling counselors, as well as either licensed professional counselors or licensed clinical social workers or licensed marriage and family therapists. Um, So they're highly credentialed. 
in treating mental health, substance use, as well as gambling. Um, so we know that problematic gambling is related to mental health. And one thing that we really aim to do is to train providers um, to integrate gambling into the work that they're already doing. So we know that providers are overworked and have large caseloads. So we're not expecting them to become the expert in the fields of gambling, but knowing where to refer if necessary, if it's outside of their scope, or if they're interested in being certified, there's definitely many ways that that can take place. Um, one thing that we really start with is looking at screening tools and so their assessments. So just making sure that maybe they have a couple questions in their assessment when they're for the first time they're meeting with a client that asks about gambling, um, but making sure that they ask it in the right way. Because if you say, you don't have a gambling problem, do you? You know, most people are generally going to say, yeah, no, 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 not me. I'm not comfortable talking to this person. They don't understand um, what I'm going through. So it's one about asking the question, asking it numerous times, asking it in the right way and then integrating it into everything else that you're doing. So especially this, you know, Super Bowl just passed. So that's a perfect opportunity to talk to clients, you know, oh, the Super Bowl happened, you know, have you ever wagered money on it? Um, you know, or other times of the year, like the Kentucky Derby or when the Powerball gets really high um, or other, you know, now we're approaching March Madness um, for basketball. So um, there's different times of the year where you can continue to have those conversations and then make it a topic in your psychoeducation groups too, just like you would cover anger management or um, anything else, you, you know, making sure that you have some kind of gambling awareness or gambling education piece, talking about the odds, talking about the risks, warning signs, and then where to go for help. I think, you know, the clinician in me, although it's been about 15 years since I've had my last clinical job, and when I was working in an OTP, the amount of scratch tickets that people would come in with and, and be scratching, I'm like, hey, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. um, and having a conversation about that that wasn't judgmental got people talking. Um, but then you'd hear a story about somebody in the clinic who won something and they would just uh, get others. But I think you said normalizing a conversation about it. So, uh, and asking questions and, and letting people think for themselves uh, rather than telling them, I think, or, or those guiding questions that they're going to say no to, right? You don't have that, do you? What are exactly. Some and we, we also, oh, really quick, Jeff, sorry. I just, no, no, no that's ahead. fine. I just also want to let, um, you and your listeners know that the Connecticut Council on Problem Gambling is gambling neutral. So we're not for or against legalized gambling, but what we really do is advocate for funds to go for directly for prevention, treatment, and recovery. So um, I approach that when, when I'm talking to clients, when I'm talking to providers, you know, letting them know, we're just letting them know that gambling is not a risk-free activity. Mm -hmm. uh, these are the things to look out for. Um, and then if you want to have a further conversation with a professional, we can definitely set that up if you feel that you're being negatively impacted by your own gambling or by someone else's. One of the things that is kind of, I hear you saying throughout the conversation is, or the message that just like other disorders, gambling disorders are on a spectrum. There's no mm -hmm. yes, no, for, the, it, Correct. for most. There, there are ways along a spectrum that people can always check out and see where they're at. And that's where those questions come in. And I think we have to remember that, that, um, it's important that we're always checking in with people just to make sure um, and let them take a look at where they're at. What are some of the risk factors uh, for problem gambling? That's something that we haven't talked about. 
Sure. So um, the risk factors actually for developing a gambling problem are very simple, uh, similar to the risk factors for substance use disorder. So the one that we talk about most is having an early exposure or an early big win. Um, so we find that in the substance use world, most people tend to have started using substances at an early age because we know that the earlier you start a behavior, the more likely you are to develop a problem. Um, and a lot of times in the trainings that we do, we ask people, you know, what was your earliest experience of gambling? Or when can you remember your first time gambling or seeing gambling around? And the interesting or the different thing about gambling is that the majority of people were introduced to gambling by a family member. So it could be something as innocent as going to play bingo at church with your grandma um, or, you know, right now with sports, you know, how many people under the age of 18 were watching the Super Bowl with their dad? Um, and then, you know, they might not have been placing wagers, but maybe dad was and, and watching that and experiencing that in the family. Um, so we see that, you know, you're not usually, you know, it's rare that somebody would be introduced to drinking at age five with their with their family. And so that's a little bit different um, of a risk factor, but also similar. Um, accessibility, which I mentioned before. Yeah. So the ease of access, especially online, people can do that from wherever they are. And especially during COVID with people working from home, how many people were supposed to be working and might have been doing other things on their computer. Um, and it's it's not really regulated in the same way as if you were in the office, you know, people aren't looking over your shoulder. Um, I talked a little bit before about not understanding the odds. So one statistic we like to throw into our trainings is that the odds of winning the Powerball is actually one in 292 million. Um, but people still feel like they have that chance, right? All you need is one ticket to win because someone's going to win. Um, and actually the odds of dying from a flesh eating disease is only one in a million. But um, so people are kind of shocked to see those. I don't want that ticket. <laughs> yeah, me either. Um, and then some of the other risk factors would include not sticking to time or money limits. So I talked about some of the apps have those options. Um, and that's one of the tips that we recommend as far as responsible gambling guidelines. Uh, people that have limited interests, feelings of boredom, loneliness, people that have mental health issues already. So we do see people that might have been depressed or anxious and using gambling as a way to self-medicate or escape um, and vice versa. So we see some people that you know started gambling and then that actually led to depression and anxiety. So it's that whole thing in the field, right? What came first, the chicken or the egg, and right. it's all connected. Um, having a parent who experiences problems would be one thing. Um, so we know that in the substance use world, having a parent that has a, a substance use issue definitely influences the child one way or the other. It could be negatively or positively. Um, and then I talked about the proximity um, as well as you know living near gambling establishments, but also just having access to your phone 24-7. Interestingly, I went to high school in Montville, and Did there you? was no casino. Um, one of my high school classmates was Kevin Brown. There was, but the oh. tribe had always been there, but there was no casino, and the population has significantly grown um, with the Mohegan Sun being there for employees and things like that. So it's 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 changed the town completely, from what I remember. And it's interesting because I know that a lot of students that um, live in that area, like. For, they go they go there for the shopping, you know, so now even people that are under age 21 might not be going to the casino to gamble, but they're going there for other reasons. So they're still being exposed to yeah. the gambling lifestyle and the gambling culture. Um, 
So that is also a risk. And uh, Jeff, I just really quick also want to just talk about some of the new risks with online and sports betting. So we talk a lot in the trainings that we do about shortening of reward schedules. So we know that gambling is focused on intermittent reward. So, right, we know that we're going to get a reward eventually. We just don't know when that is going to happen and how big of a reward it's going to be. So when we're looking at sports, traditional sports betting was you just bet on who wins the game, right? Who's going to win overall at the end of the game? Now we're moving to shortening that reward schedule where we're looking at exactly what you talked about earlier, like the in-play bets, the prop bets, the fantasy sports and daily fantasy sports. So there's all this, um, these new opportunities to gamble during the game, outside of the game, and it's constant action um, where there's there are no breaks um, where before you had to wait till the end of the season for fantasy sports to know who was the winner or who was the loser. Um, I talked more about the risk reactivities. There's that immediacy that plays on our need for instant gratification. Um, we talk about increased marketing and promotions. And also the issue with online is that you can be completely anonymous and it's private, right? So you might have to put in your information to gamble, but you can gamble for as long as people want to gamble without you know, the fear of the judgment of, you know, being that person that might be sitting at a a casino slot machine for 72 hours straight and people walking by saying, Oh, I wonder what's going on with that person. I hope they're okay. They've been sitting there for a really long time without a break. Um, So there is that ability for immersion and dissociation. And then one big risk right now with online and sports betting is the idea of cashless transactions. So this is the first time that you've been able to use your credit cards And so we know that, you know, the casinos have done that in the past of you used to have to put in the coins in the slot machine and pull the handle. Um, So we see that that's not really the case anymore. You're just putting in your player's card. Same thing when you're playing, you know, poker, it's all chips. So the kind of the idea of it's real money is taken away, which in itself is a risk factor for people for spending more. Um, And I kind of relate that to my own, my own experience of, you know, I like shopping. So my credit card is attached to my Amazon account. So it's so much easier to add things to a cart and then just check out when you're not seeing the money come out all the time until you're getting that statement. So I think people are are a little more risky with the amount of money that they're willing to spend online um, for those reasons. And then the social stigma towards gambling is really decreasing, which also is increasing the participation. Um, so that's just something that um, I wanted to throw out there that you know there are some there's a lot of risks overall, and then there's some new risks that we're really hyper focused on. If you watch older movies, seventies and eighties, the individuals with substance use disorders were looked at very differently than individuals um, with gambling disorders because you would hear the terms regularly, oh, that degenerate gambler, that degenerate gambler. Mm-hmm. And you're not hearing that. Um, especially in those mob movies, but you don't hear that as much. It's much more socially acceptable um, to uh, for gambling. And and to be honest, it's part of our lexicon. How many times do people, just everyday people, say, "Oh, I bet you," not mm-hmm. meaning anything, but the language is still there. And I think that the language can have, especially with young people, can can take hold um, and normalize it. 
And I think that's one thing that um, I'm very focused on right now is kind of changing that language. So we know in the substance use field, you know, we've moved from words that we used to use and we don't use that anymore. Um, so we're seeing that with gambling as well. You know, even saying the gambler is, is kind of frowned upon. You know, we're saying a person who is experiencing problems related to gambling or experiencing harms associated with their gambling. Um, if, and previous years, I don't even know how long ago now, it used to be considered pathological gambling or in Gambler's Anonymous rooms, you'll hear sometimes they say compulsive gambler. We're really trying to switch that narrative to saying a person who's in long-term recovery from a gambling disorder, you know, in the same way that, you know, we don't say really that somebody has relapsed. You know, there's just all these terminologies that we used to use um, and I think we're doing a really good job in the mental health and substance use side. And we're getting there with gambling, but we're still, and I mentioned this in the ESPN article, we're still a little bit behind the times here in our field. So um, I think the more that we practice using appropriate words that are person-centered and less stigmatizing, the better it is for the community. Yeah, I agree. It's really made a big difference in the recovery communities that, that I get to see and deal with in terms of uh, substance use disorder language. And so I'm sure it would have the same effect uh, and normalize the conversation when it's not stigmatized. Um, although there's similarities in both gambling and substance use disorders, there are unique qualities for each. And, and we'd be foolish to dismiss that uniqueness of each and every individual. The two pe no two people are the same. Um, what are some basics that everyone in the SUD industry should have competency in for gambling disorders? So um, I think one important thing to mention is that gambling disorder is known as the hidden addiction. So some people have heard that terminology thrown around. So it can be really diff difficult to diagnose. So there's no biological test. So, you know, when I used to work in detox or work in the inpatient program, we were doing breathalyzers and urinalysis screens. So you can tell if someone um, was using a substance. And also just by looking at someone, you can usually tell if they're under the influence of anything. Um, with gambling, you're not going to be able to know unless you have that rapport with that client who's going to be telling you how much they gamble. You have no idea how much, and if they did. Um, so it's really important to have that relationship. Um, and it's not self-limiting. So that means that when we you know, drink a certain amount of alcohol or use a certain amount of drugs, we know what's going to happen to us. We're either going to pass out or overdose or something's gonna happen in our body um, to say, okay, enough is enough. But with gambling, it's not self-limiting. So someone can continue to gamble for as long as, as they possibly can, as long as they have access to money. Um, so that's something that's a little bit different. Uh, I think somebody that is working with somebody that has a gambling issue or is thinking that they might have a gambling issue, not to be afraid to talk about money. And I think that's something that's been a taboo subject, especially when I, you know, was seeing clients, you know, 10 years ago, you know, there are certain things you don't talk about, right? You don't talk about money. You don't talk about politics. You don't talk about religion. Um, and I think the times are really changing and that it's super important for people to talk about money because money is the fuel for people to be able to continue to stay in action um, through, through gambling. Um, and then the other thing is that the problem can also be the solution. So that's a little bit different than the substance use world. Um, so that somebody that has gotten themselves into significant amount of debt, say they're in $100,000 worth of debt from gambling and they work a minimum wage job, how are they ever going to be able to pay back that debt? So in their mind, they think that the only way that they could pay back that debt is to obviously win big 
right. to pay it back. And then it goes back into this vicious cycle of people chasing their losses and attempts to, you know, really make it big. Um, so that's something that's a little bit different. Um, we talked a little bit more about the intermittent reward schedule. So that's a little bit different and important to know. And then there's the fantasies of success. So the gambling industry really sells that idea of hope. So I think everybody has an idea in their mind that if they did hit the jackpot or they won the lottery, you know, what would you do? And I think that society really does normalize that. I mean, we even have TV shows that's like my lottery dream house. And so it helps people to, you know, really fantasize of what they could do with that money. And I don't think that that's the same of what people are envisioning their life when, when they're using substances. Um, And I already talked a little bit more about asking questions, integrating gambling into the work already being done, um, and then using some screening tools. So there are some great screening tools out there. Um, One would just be just to talk about it in your assessment in any way your agency allows for or for you to talk about your clients. But um, one that I really like is the Problem Gambling Severity Index, um, which talks about it goes off of the nine criteria from the DSM-5. Um, And it really looks at preoccupation and tolerance and withdrawal. Um, So that's a great one for clinicians. Uh, I think it's nine questions that somebody can go and just uh, go through that to see if their client is meeting any of those issues. That's something that we use when we do outreach events. Uh, We will have them that are anonymous and we hand them out and people can fill them out. And if they want to have a conversation with us, great. If not, able to see where they fall on that screening tool. Mm-hmm. And then there's another one, which is the BBGS, uh, which is the Brief Biosocial Gambling Screen, which is a quick three-question screen. So those are two that I um, like the best. There's a bunch of other ones that can be found through um, the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, Problem Gambling Services website. Um, some of them are a little older screening tools, but it's definitely worthwhile to check it out. You mentioned the... Uh, uh my lottery dream home. I may have seen that once or twice. There's an interesting thing that, that during that show, which is really telling somebody may win a million dollars. And there, it seems to always be on scratch offs. Mm-hmm. They win a million dollars and they go to the guy and they're going to buy a house. What do you want to spend on a house? $800,000. You know, you're not going to get a million dollars in cash and you're spending mm-hmm. more than you're getting on a house. It just tells me something about risk. You know, you mm-hmm. don't see the person who wins 5 million and says, what you, well, I want to spend about 300,000, you know, cause I just want to take this. I just really want a pool. And you say, Oh, that person is thinking it through, but mm-hmm. it's almost that instant gratification to say, Oh, I can buy this big giant house. Um, it, so I, I just find that fascinating. Um, the, that there's a level, that level of irresponsibility or this, the, the, you know, it's not their money. It's it's mm-hmm. that they can spend it. I find it fascinating to see that because you really don't see somebody, you know, kind of planning ahead uh, with what they're going to do with that money and how they're going to send their children to school or pay for long term care or whatever it may be. Uh, are we as a field doing enough to prevent problem gambling? So. I think we're doing a decent job, um, but we can always be doing more. Um, I think prevention really needs to start at a younger age. So I know that we've had programs and people can take it or leave it, you know, what they think about the D.A.R.E. program. Um, But there are programs that talk about overall wellness and mental health and substance use in schools. But we really aren't talking about gambling in the same way. And we should be. 
and we are really lucky if any colleges or universities are addressing gambling disorder. So, I mean, I went, I got my undergraduate in psychology, went four years of school with not ever talking about anybody having a gambling issue. Um, went and got my master's degree in community counseling. Um, the only reason I think that my cohort was introduced to the issue that gambling could be a real thing um, was because I was working in an inpatient program and seeing clients. So every single time that we got to pick a you know an issue to report on or do a presentation, I was always picking gambling disorder because um, that's what I was seeing with my clients. I did my thesis on it. Um, and so I, talking to some of my friends that have worked in, you know, that are providers, it was very similar in graduate school for them as well. And so um, I really tried to do my best to get into colleges. I have a great relationship with Gateway Community College. So I go and teach a class there every semester, um, letting them know, you know, everything that you can want to know about a gambling disorder and also the resources. So I would really love to see other colleges and universities um, take up that opportunity. And, you know, they don't have to do it. I'm, I'm willing to come and do the presentations and, and do the lectures for them. Um, so it's definitely not happening at the high school and middle school levels, um, except for those students that are participating with some of our projects that we have. And we see that they are really talk about learning a lot after uh, participating in that, that they didn't even know that gambling could be as severe as substance use issues. Um, I would love to see the programming integrated into the gambling education. So we see some states that do have bills around that, um, kind of mandating or regulating um, some type of gambling curriculum in the schools and can integrate it into wellness programs that they have. Um, and then just, again, prevention can also happen on the treatment level by integrating the conversations about gambling. So the people that you're working with might not have a gambling disorder, but making it be on their radar because replacement behaviors are a real thing. So sometimes when people are in recovery from something else for a long period of time, um, they can start to think of other ways that they can self-medicate and gambling seems to be one for, for people in recovery. And I think we need to stay current as providers. We need to adapt to the emerging trends, to the current issues. And we talked a little bit about that. You know, times are really changing and not everyone is going to fit into a box. Um, you know, so there, there are certain there's differences with younger people that participate in sports betting. There's differences with online. There's difference with horse betting. So every type of better um, experiences a little bit of difference. And I think we need to move on the treatment side as well. So addressing those issues and making it more virtual. And we saw that happen in COVID, which I think was a silver lining of the, the pandemic per se, because now people do have access to telehealth. Um, and so people that had issues with transportation or people that really weren't comfortable talking in groups still could receive the services. So I'm hoping that that's something that's here to stay. Well, you talked about paying attention to emerging trends and, and certain demographic groups are different and their individualities with each group. You know, that strikes a chord with me because uh, I have a pet peeve about evidence-based practices, not about the practices <laughs> themselves, but about the misapplication because something worked in a specific group does not mean that there's a universal application for it. We've been very lucky with something in the mental health side, like DBT, which has, mm -hmm. which has been able to be used with much more populations than it was uh, researched on. But I do struggle with that. Just because something is an evidence-based practice doesn't mean it's appropriate for the individual that you have in front of you. You have to take all the cultural factors into you know into account to make sure that you're providing the right service for the right person. 
And I totally agree with that. And I think that one of the issues with evidence-based practices specifically in the gambling field is that there's not that many that exist. So we are borrowing from, from other fields. So, I mean, we do see a lot of um, CBT and MI used in treatment for gambling disorder. Um, and then we do have some providers that are starting to use EMDR. And, and so we are using things, but also gambling is a little bit different and it's unique. And, and we're kind of figuring it out as we go um, based on things that have worked in the past. But we also have to change. Yeah. And I also think that with the, the new attention being paid to it, you're going to see more research. More research is expensive. Uh, more mm-hmm. funding for research. Uh, and it's certainly not going to be funded by the gambling companies because they don't want it. But there has to be more public monies to pay for this research so that we can find out what's going on. Because strictly in Connecticut, you said 54,000 people uh identified with problem gambling and you know, the 287,000 that you say at mm-hmm, risk. That's a lot of our population and it deserves our attention um, from the from the state government and from the people. Yeah, and we're really hoping that this legislative session, that that's something that we can move forward with. Um, so it's always been something that said that it needed to be done every 10 years. Um, but the last gambling study in Connecticut was actually in 2009. So we're well overdue. Um, so I would love to see a, a research study that really paints that full story of what's going on now. You know, when that happened, online wasn't a thing. Sports betting wasn't a thing. Um you know, so the demographics are changing. And, and like I said, those numbers were from a few years ago. Um, and I would think that they would, you know, double, if not triple, um, the amount of people that are at risk now with with the advertisements and with the accessibility and the normalization. The data is only good when it's uh, accurate and current. Yes. Uh, before we finish up, anything you'd like to share with our listeners, how they can get in touch with the Connecticut Council on Problem Gambling? Sure. So you can reach out to Jeff if you want to chat with me. Um, I can send out my email address. So I'm always available for people to reach out to me. Um, Our organization does focus on um, our 24-hour helpline. So that's available for anyone who has a gambling issue um, or is worried about someone else's gambling or just wants to talk about maybe this could be potentially coming an issue for people. Um, so we, we've been able to access um, help uh, for people for support, referrals to treatment, and just resources 24 hours a day, seven days a week through our helpline, which is calling 1-888-789-7777. You can also visit www.ccpg.org for resources and slash chat to chat with us, which is also 24 hours a day. Um, I did mention better choice treatment providers. So there's five better choice treatment programs in the state of Connecticut, depending on which region you're in. All of that can be found on our website as well. Um, so if anybody's looking for a direct provider, they provide individual counseling, group counseling. They also have peer support, um, which is, is great. So it's people that are in long-term recovery from gambling disorder. Uh, they're able to share their experience. And I know the world is moving closer to bringing peers on board to do a lot of the work, um, which is super important to have people that have lived experience in your programs. Um, and then throughout the month of March and also throughout the year, we have trainings and conferences 
um, that are all associated with CCB. So we offer the CEUs um, necessary for certification. And there's different levels of certification as well. You can go through the Connecticut Certification Board for um, certification. And there's other levels as well. Um, if people are interested in getting certified, we have great consultation calls that are free that are offered in the state. We have a handful of people that are able to do the supervision. So we're always um, excited to bring on new people that are interested in getting in this field um, because we need more people. <laughs> so I mean, we're a very small field and we're hoping that um, now, although I believe that the impacts have been negative of legalized sports betting, at least it's now on people's radar and there's an increased awareness in general with the community because they're seeing the ads and now they're like kind of having that aha moment of oh, maybe I should be concerned about this. You know, we understand that there's a lot of other things that are going on that are taking priority, but gambling should be one of them. Um, and like I said, you could just reach out to me for any additional questions, resources, or to get more involved in Connecticut. Um, we have gambling awareness teams that are regional as well. Um, and that's it for me, Jeff. I really want to thank you for having me and having this conversation. And, and here in Connecticut, if you go to the uh, the Demas website that you can find services uh, right on the website, um, gambling providers uh, around the country. Check with my, for my listeners in other uh, parts of the country, check with your single state agency um, about uh, their, their funded uh, programs. And if you haven't read the article on ESPN, the easiest way to get to it is just to put ESPN gambling, Caitlin Brown, and the article <laughs> comes up again it's entitled inside the life of a gambling helpline worker um i know caitlin does does that and much more than that so and it keeps her quite busy but take a good look at that it's a good article it's interesting and it was very exciting to see this being paid attention to on a uh, national and international basis um caitlin thanks for joining us um that's going to do it for this episode of scope of practice i i'd uh like to wish you well on your very busy month ahead of probably getting off in March. Um, and I'd like to send our appreciation to Joanna Crowell of Crowell Counseling and Consulting for her financial support. We do welcome any organization to join our podcast as a sponsor. That can be reached at info at ctcertboard.org for more information. We here at the Connecticut Certification Board appreciate everyone who's listening. Don't forget to follow us on Podbean, iTunes, Amazon, or your favorite podcast application. We'll catch you next time, everybody. 